Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello, welcome, and thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan. Today, we diverge from our typical content. We'll be presenting part one of a three-part panel discussion concerning Sanctity of Life Matters. With the ever-increasing focus on life matters in our culture, it's essential for Christians to have a biblically grounded understanding of the value of life and of our role in promoting and valuing that human life. With that in mind, Grace Baptist Church here has recently hosted a panel of discussion dealing with a number of such issues, and today we'll hear the first part of that presentation, a focus on the issue of abortion. You'll be hearing a few voices today, all members and leaders of our congregation here at Grace. Josh Kira is an associate professor of philosophy and theology at Cedarville University. He holds a Master of Divinity degree from the Yale Divinity School and a PhD in philosophy of religion and theology from the Claremont Graduate University. Justin Cole is the chair and an associate professor of pharmacy practice at Cedarville University. He's the director of the University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. He received his PharmD degree from the Ohio Northern University. And finally, Jeff Burr, our church's pastor for discipleship, is moderating the discussion. Let's join the panel discussion in progress. So the first, I'm going to direct this initial question to Dr. Kira. Uh, in previous conversations, you have uh, expressed some concern about the tendency to start talking about abortion um, in regards to the 5%. Um, so what do you mean by that? And where should we start the conversation with we're thinking about these issues? <clears throat> yeah, so um, if you were to take a look at any of the statistics that we have that are relatively reliable on when an abortion occurs, it's very rare that abortion occurs in the case of the physical health of the mother. Um, at the highest, it's 5%, but in all likelihood, it's less than 1%. Um, and so it's... It, it, the reason why this is a difficulty is even scripturally, when we take a look at ethical principles, the principle of ethics, the overall principle is usually given, and then any subtleties, any nuances are then added to that. But what, what ends up happening in the kind of public discourse on this issue right now is the most unusual cases are the cases that are used to try to argue for how we should do this overall. And that seems to be a questionable practice Theologically, it's a question of practice in the history of ethics. No ethicist typically goes off of the most unusual cases as the reason to, to legislate or to speak to the rest of the cases. And so I think there's a difficulty in this because uh, you'll see that in the rhetoric of the debate, right? So the, the reason why we shouldn't do this is for these cases, even though these cases are very odd. Uh, some of the cases that we talk, that are even talked about in legislation are put forth on advertisements are cases that are already dealt with in our actual legislation. So the, what's occurring in the discussion of these, like for the health of the mother, that those are actually just rhetoric that has nothing to do with the actual issue, right? There is already within Ohio's, Ohio's legislation, it's not the same for every, um, it has, uh, let's say a different amount of specificity state by state, but in Ohio's legislation, there's already legislation that says that if it is recognized the physical health of the mother, meaning the mother will die if they were to take this birth to term, that there will be something done that will uh, and end up leading to the death of the child. Most of the reasons why is because those cases tend to be the cases where the child would die anyway. Um, and so 
um, that's already part of the law. So the question ends up being is why is this rhetoric put forth? And it's because this is meant to persuade without actually dealing with the ethical principles involved. And so part and parcel of us even just dealing with an unbeliever on this issue is let's start with the core big issue and then you can ask us about and we can give nuances related to the difficulties of, uh, of pregnancies that can affect the health of the mother, uh, things like uh, where the mother didn't have any autonomy in the choice of having a child in the case of rape or something like that. We can discuss those as a subsection of the overall thing, but those don't seem to be the issues that should drive the way that we view the, the, uh, the issue of abortion overall. Yeah. So there are 5%, there is the 5%, and uh, there, there are some of the cases that you, you alluded to. Um, how would you help us to think, you know, are there cases where it, in your understanding, it would be permissible uh, to, to terminate a pregnancy, a morally permissible, biblically. Yeah, and I think there are cases where we would do something where the child would die. I, I don't want to call it a termination of the pregnancy so much as there's an underlying condition that is going to cause this person not to live. Okay, and we, we have the same thing actually when we get to end of life issues, which is there seems to be a vast difference between taking someone's life and if someone has an underlying condition that's going to take their life, not preventing that from taking their life. Because it, it's very clear in scripture that we're not supposed to take someone's life. It's not clear in scripture that we need to try to keep someone alive using every means that we possibly have. Because that doesn't even look like it happens in scripture. And so uh, I think there are cases like, for example, and, and the, the, the most common one that's argued about and discussed is the issue of a two pregnancy where the mother and the child will not survive if this goes to trial. Um, the child has a 0% chance of surviving. And so in, in those types of cases, I think removing, uh, in, in that case, the embryo in a way that's going to save the mother and the child's basically already been in an inhospitable environment that would not allow them to survive and then moving them to another inhospitable environment where they would not survive uh, doesn't seem to be against the idea it doesn't seem like I'm terminating the pres uh, a pregnancy. That's the reason why, like, already in the, it, it, which is interesting, already by the 13th century, Catholic scholastics have already discussed this type of issue. It, it was related to other ethical issues, but they say there are times where our intention may have uh, other effects that are not our main goals or effects. But we know that that main goal is significant to what's going on. And so there are times where, for example, Saving the mother and the child would be best, and we know we can't do it. But saving the mother seems to be significant to us also. And so if that is our intention, it is not our intention to try to, to, to terminate this pregnancy. And if it's not, uh, we're, what we're doing is not what is, what is the underlying issue that is going to actually um, prevent this child from living, then it seems like in those cases it's justified. It's going to be a very contracted set of issues, though. Um, because like, for example, that, that means that issues related to what are called, uh, that's related to the, the physical health of the mother. And I think this is going to be a, a, a related to her actual life and that. Um, whereas there's other things that relate to pregnancy that could affect the health of the mother that I don't think that's enough for. It's, um, like one of the reasons why, uh, my wife Carrie and I, why we didn't have more children, I think we would have been open to it, but 
her body it started taking such a toll on the third and fourth child, the fourth, fourth child that she still has physical problems based off of it. And we knew that was happening at, after the third child and during the fourth child we knew it, right? But it wasn't related to whether she would survive or not. It was going to affect her physical health, but it, just the affecting the physical health is not enough for us. Um, and there's also this significant problem that we have is because of the way that these things have been legislated, and you could tell the way that issue one is written that it's related to a very particular topic that happened very early on in abortion legislation, which is when the same year that Roe versus Wade was enacted, uh, there was a, 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 another case, a sister case called Doe versus Bolton. And that case becomes very significant to us because in Roe versus Wade, it basically limited abortion to the first two trimesters, which is itself a medically arbitrary amount of time. But it could go into the last trimester, depending on if the physician believed it was significant for the health of the mother. And that same type of language is used in issue one, and it's used in most abortion legislation. The reason why that's significant to us is by the time you get to Doe versus Bolton, which is basically handed down at the same time, they open the health of the mother to be the mental health of the mother. And that mental health of the mother then has been more and more defined every decade as what the mother perceives that's going to lead to their happiness. And so that ends up now allowing opening up abortion more or less for a very long period of time, as long as a medical doctor, not a psychologist who talks to them, but simply a medical doctor says, is this going to be okay with you? And if they say, no, I'll be unhappy, that's enough. And that becomes problematic. And so for me, even when we get with these cases, I would say even in the quote, mental health of the mother, which I, the reason why I say it in quotes is because some people that are aware are talking about, they don't even understand what the term mental health means. So, I, but in the terms of whether the, the mother's going to be happy or not, I don't think that is enough to be able to legislate process it either. Um, so uh, in, in some of those cases, in, in terms of incest, I don't, think, I don't think it's worthwhile there because I think the, the reason why we think the problem about incest is because the problem's for the child, but part of it has to do with what we think about a good life for a child is. That if a child is developmentally disabled, that somehow that makes it an unhappy life for them and then a life not worth living or for us to support. And that seems to make no sense to me. Um, I, I used to serve at a camp along with uh, individuals with special needs and they seem to be much more happy than we are. And that makes me question the idea that they cannot live the good life. They are living the good life. They might be living the good life better than us. So I don't understand why that ends up being a thing. The issue of rape, I would say, is a very difficult issue. Because we do recognize scripturally that attacks on an individual's autonomy are the worst types of evils. That's why murder is so bad for us, and that's why in the Old Testament, it was capital punishment. That's why rape was capital punishment in the Old Testament, because you're attacking the autonomy of the individual. And so I understand that as an issue, and I, and I, I won't make it simpler, but also even in that case, I don't think we typically would allow that unless I think it is going to relate to the health of a mother. Like for example, there are sometimes with very young girls who just hit puberty, in the case of rape, where it, it, it could be very, very dangerous for them, and I at least allow the conversation. But in general, I think we want to be careful about saying, well, they didn't choose this, which is definitely not the case, and this is an evil that has been perpetrated among them, that the good thing to do, that, do, do in this case is something else that we think is probably wrong. Because um, we don't typically want to do that in other situations. We don't want to compound the, the, the things that are going on. 
And so, so I, I think there are, there are attempts where we would consider exceptions, like um, I, I think where the health of the mother is and the health of the child is clearly, it's clearly the case that both of them won't survive. But in other cases that I think the world has tried to make ambiguous, I don't think they're quite as ambiguous. I don't think those seem to be the ones that scripture talks about. Jeff, may I add in one thing? I, I think what is pointed out here by Josh is that these are the 5%. These are part of those rare exceptions, right? Um, and the reality is rave incest and um, the threat of the mother's life are incredibly rare in the vast majority. And we know the smaller of our statistics of abortions truly are elective. And so uh, this is just reiterating what Josh has already shared with us, that these exceptions are incredibly rare. You, you started on this word a little bit, Josh, in terms of actually talking about issue one and how it's framed. I mean, can you just, yeah. we, this is the timely part of the discussion. Can yeah. you just help us think through maybe some of the things we need to be noticing in the... Yeah, so this, this was obviously precipitated by issue one that's coming up, which would be a <clears throat> amendment to the Constitution that would affect our Bill of Rights, because it's Article One, which is our Bill of Rights. Uh, so that itself is a very intriguing thing because it's trying to enshrine a particular right, which is very unusual to do. Uh, it, it's just rarer and rarer lately because we assume that we've gotten a lot of those out of the way. Um, but there's certain difficulties with the way that it's written uh, for various reasons. One is the cases that it talks about are unusual cases because four of which we already cover in our legislation and, and they're not issues for us. So the question is, why, why are those four brought up again? Okay, so this is talking about issues of like uh, um, your ability to choose contraception or things like that uh, that are related. And the fifth one that it's talked about that a person should have their own quote, reproductive choice over is abortion. The, the reason why those first four there looks like they're there is so that, and this is, the, this is just partially cynicism, but it's just how things are in this world. It's because Planned Parenthood got a lot of influence on the way that this was written. And Planned Parenthood wants to enshrine them as the ability to produce any of these five things without having the recourse of being sued. So that's why the, the discussion is not just that an individual is allowed to make these types of choices, it's that anybody aiding these individuals in making these types of choices cannot be in any way uh, dealt with or receive legal repercussions from it. And the two big, two, big, two big groups that are really pushing for that are your teachers groups that want to be able to say what they want within the, the, um, the school, um, like tell your child that maybe they're another gender and they should consider what it, they want to be able to say that and, and Planned Parenthood wants to be able to perform abortions without having legal repercussions of them doing something like performing abortion on a young girl without their parents' permission. So that, that's the reason why it's difficult, because now it's not just particular persons, but actually it says persons and entities, because now you're allowing corporations to be written into the actual legislation. And that itself, we t typically don't like, okay? We've had a history of legal, uh, uh, legal issues related to that, where corporations are treated like persons, which in my view is a terrible idea, okay? I understand why they say that, because they want the, co the Constitution to cover corporations when they weren't thinking about it, but it just is a, is a bad idea in general. Uh, and then also related to that is, it, it, when it talks about it, it says, it can be, the issue of abortion can be limited after fetal liability. It's not that it's limited, so that means there would have to be a separate legislation on whether they, it would cause us to limit abortion after fetal liability. 
And they said, but there is the exception in which the physician uh, or the individual actually performing the abortion uh, says that it's for the health of the mother. But once again, that health of the mother, the way that it's now been historically, because Doe versus Bolton was not overturned and Roe versus Wade is, this could simply be the, the mental health of the mother as interpreted by a medical doctor that is not related to mental health and typically interpreted in popular terms, which is what would make them happy. And that now gives basically an open uh, possibility of more or less abortion until the time of birth. And, and, and so all of those cases seem to be questionable. And then obviously, like related to just what we do in general here is anything that we think can uh, attack parental rights is something that we need to deal with immediately. We've, we've, like I'll just be honest, Christians have chosen not to deal with it in public education for 50 years. This is, what, what's going on in public education now is not a new thing. This started in 1930s in Germany, where there's an educational theory coming out of there that affected American educational theory in the middle of the 20th century, and more or less, Christians have not fought against it. And so what we see now going on in the average school is just a hundred years in the making almost. But we have to, as Christians, there are some nights where we have to defend the right of people to do things that we don't think are good so that we can defend the right of us to do what we know need to do as Christians. So we defend freedom of speech, even though people can use that horrifically because we need to be able to share the gospel. We also need to defend parental rights, even though there's bad parents, because we need to defend the rights of Christians to do what is necessary for them to, to love and disciple their children well. And this type of legislation ends up attacking that right because the only individual involved with this decision is the decision that's actually that to the procedure, meaning if it's a young girl who's 13 years old who decides to get into a sexual relationship and get pregnant, uh, their parents do not have to be notified. This, and by the way, this already is happening in other states. In California, there is no parental notification. And it's not only their own parental notification, if you notify the parents, like as a, like a, in, within the schools, then you could get sued, like by the school or by the state. So th these types of legislation are already there, and this seems to be Ohio's move towards that direction. And that's the, that's the concerning thing, is there is this underlying question of whether par parents are going to be able to get involved with very significant decisions for their children, even though we typically think that's significant. And I'll, I'll just add one thing. I think the, the statement, Josh has already pointed out that the statement about viability already has exception clauses, that it really is, doesn't matter. But uh, as a clinician, uh, I'm a pediatric pharmacist by training, and I've worked in neonatal intensive care units, where eight years ago is the last time I was in a NICU. I cared, uh, was part of the care team for 23-week-old babies, which means they were born 17 weeks prematurely. Literally, they would fit in my hand from the end of my middle finger to the palm of my hand at 23, born at 23 weeks. The problem we have is that lower limit of viability is constantly changing in a technological society. So now, just uh, two weeks ago, I talked with a friend who also works um, full-time in a neonatal intensive care unit. She is regularly caring for 22-week-old uh, babies, again, born now 18, 19 weeks prematurely. And we actually, uh, while we don't like to admit it, have this technology to basically create an artificial way where if we wanted to keep younger babies alive, it's possible. Remember that in a technological society, science and technology ask the question, can we do this? Is it possible? But we as Christians have to be in the business of asking the question, should we do it, right? And so even that, even putting the statements in about the viability and having that be a clinical determination is really a moving target 
that doesn't align with when human life begins and when, more importantly, human personhood begins, as we talked about. Yeah, and kind of related to that is part of the language is related to evidence-based practices or standard practices, but there's not a lot of standard practices related to some of these things, especially related to mental health. And there's very little evidence-based practices in those cases. And so when you allow that to be open, then there's a huge amount of ambiguity there. And that's primarily what is sought to some degree by those who are pushing this, is they need the situation to be ambiguous enough for it to cover all the things that they think that their constituents would like to do. And, and that's one of the, the overall dangers, is this type of ambiguity just being enshrined in the Constitution. I want to pivot this same, same arena, but pivot this just a little bit. Pastor Tanum has been, uh, in this Sermon of the Mount series, has been kind of exhorting us, you know, the goal isn't to figure out how close we can get to the edge. Uh, the goal is to, to really understand God's heart in these various arenas. So just think about that in this arena. But or should we know that we shouldn't kill unborn children, okay? Um, but if we tried to just drive towards the heart of this issue, we applied that principle to the topic of abortion, how would that cause us to think? And we, we talk a little bit about sort of a contraceptive mindset that many have, even in the church, um, where we don't fully embrace the blessing of children in God's um, sacred design for sexual intimacy and, and, and all that's involved in that. Yeah, um, so one of the other professors, the other philosopher, so that means I'm probably all new nuggets. The other philosopher in our faculty, he and I discussed this. He, he came from a, a Catholic background, which is very helpful to me because I get to see what uh, Catholic ethical theory says on a lot of these things. And then obviously I came from a, a Protestant background. Um, one of the things that he and I have both discussed is that there, even if I don't think contraception is wrong, which I, I typically don't depending on what it is, the con a contraceptive mindset, a mindset in which like we treat children as if there's something to be avoided, uh, there, there's questions about that. Like if someone, for, for example, if new, uh, young Marys are still trying to figure out how they're gonna pay for themselves and then paying for a child which they are called by God to provide for is gonna be a difficulty, I can understand that. But when you have individuals, for example, within the church or outside the church who are like, well, we don't wanna have children because it'll affect what I wanna do or it'll affect the freedoms that I think I have. Well, that's more or less the, the, the secular popular culture because you love children. And, and if we take seriously the idea that's that the children, philosophy, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So if we take that, I, this, if we take seriously the idea that children are a blessing for the Lord, then that type of mindset needs to be eradicated from the church. Right. Um, and, and it's interesting because the way it's playing out in culture is in, on multiple different farm fronts. You not only have, okay, we want to have sexual freedom without the consequences of having a child. And children are treated as a consequence, not a blessing or a reward, but a consequence of this. And then not only that is we have actually the attempt to make children, the, the, the period at which a child is a child shorter because it's children that are dragged in, this, in the view of the world, not other adults per se, because other adults we can get stuff from. Does it make sense? But I, I don't know if I'm not all of you here have children. Children ask for a lot of stuff. They're not producing a lot of stuff for your household, right? They do at times, and, uh, but, um, but it's as if that 
really, I really only, other people only matter to me so much as they get to the point of where I can use them for something. And so what we do with children is we try to make them grow up very fast. And that's happened with the sexualization of children within, uh, within um, schools. That's asking them to deal with issues that they don't actually deal with. And if you were to just let nature take its course, right, and then guide them according to scripture, they would probably just treat other kids pretty well. But we don't actually push against that sometimes, right? Um, like, I, I do think to a large degree, racism is a learned behavior. But I also don't think that a three-year-old needs to learn about racism necessarily. It's like my, my daughter Kennedy, uh, she is a different shade of all of her friends. She is the darkest of my children. She's three-quarters Japanese and she got like all the Japanese. And my mom, my mom's DNA is like somehow not in her. Um, and so she is much darker than her friends, um, most of them. And when they hang out, there's, there's never been an issue about that. They have, their friend group is a child who's African-American, a child who's Asian, a lot of Caucasian children, and they're, they're, they don't even think about that. So the question is, where does this sprout up? And part of it is because we don't teach them well, but when they're not dealing with this issue, I'm not sure if it's significant for us to start to broach these issues and make them grow up as if they need to be individuals that are voting when they're seven. And so even that is a mentality that is encouraged by this idea that children are a drag on us instead of blessings from God that teach us something. It's like, it, it, this is just a side note. My goal before wife and kids was to be a world famous philosopher. And then I got married and I realized I wanna be a, a good, great philosopher and uh, an excellent husband. And then when I had kids, I realized I want to be a sufficiently good philosopher and an excellent husband and an excellent children. Like the, the sanctifying process of what they've done for me is something that is incalculable. So I can't treat them as if this is a problem that God has given me. And, and even in my own life, it's like there are times where I start to go, what's going And I'm like, I got to get rid of that mindset even on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. When my child doesn't do something I want, and I'm having to discipline them, they're still a blessing, right? And so I, I think that's the thing that we have to push back. We have to, we have to really, as a church, work on this valuing of children within our congregation and outside of our congregation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you for joining us for this week's focus on important matters of human life as we've heard a moving panel discussion on the issues of life and abortion. We invite you to share your questions and comments, and especially with a topic like this, we know that there are many matters that could come to your mind, either personal or other matters that you'd like to discuss, perhaps with a panel participant or an elder here at the church. Please feel free to email those questions or those comments to contact at gracecedarville.org, or feel free also to contact the church's office who can put you in contact with one of those leaders. And also plan to join us next time. We'll be planning to continue our study of God's Word in Matthew chapter 6. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Mark Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.